to Luke chapter 1 in your uh, Bible, if you'd like. And let's pray before we uh, open God's Word together. Father, we just ask your blessing on our time as we begin our study of this wonderful gospel, Lord. It's, um, it's an incredible thing that you've given us in these words. We just thank you. We pray that our hearts would be um, attuned to not only the great truth here, but um, the application that we can make of it for ourselves. You're a good God and very worthy of our attention. And we ask you to help us focus now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to expose secrets. Secret passages from the Bible. We're going to look at the missing verses of the Bible. Yes, the forgotten truth, long hidden in plain sight. These are the suppressed verses, the verses the guardians of culture don't want you to see. You ever seen books like that, like in the bookstore, you know, and magazine articles and stuff like that? The lost books of the Bible or uh, the suppressed gospels or the newly discovered gospel of Judas or something like that. Um, there's a big push among those who do not want to acknowledge biblical authority in our culture. And it comes from religious people and non-religious people. It comes from uh, uneducated people and highly educated people and media people. And it's a big push to make the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, seem either just one strain of opinion about Jesus, one sort of stream in the broad river of Christianity, thus marginalizing the Gospels as kind of four amongst dozens, kind of an idea, and they're not very important. Or else they, they um, cast the Bible as we know it as the product of powerful political forces, crushing the real essence of Christianity, which was nurtured in these little groups in which the oppressive Orthodox Church crushed and imposed on us these four Gospels. And But since then we've discovered the lost Gospels, and now we can read them and, or whatever. And all that stuff comes from a modern resurgence of, well, not a true resurgence, but let me just say a politically correct resurgence of Gnosticism, which was a second and third century heretical movement uh, within Christianity, outside of Christianity, really, but I mean, it was a cult, uh, just like, you know, the Mormonism would be a cult in our time. The Gnostics were cults way back in the early days. Mixing Christian ideas with Greek philosophy and creating a very strange, esoteric, mystical religion back in those days. The Gnostics were well known to historians because it's not new. None of it's new because our, our, the church fathers, especially Irenaeus, who lived in the second century, he was the bishop in uh, Lyons, France. He wrote um, a whole book against the Gnostics and quoted them at length. So we know what they taught and all that. There's nothing new about it. But in 1945, um, many original Gnostic texts, which had been lost to history, were discovered in a, in a cave, and it's called the Nag Hammadi Library. And there was a couple of them that were discovered before that, and there's been a few since, but that was the big haul, you know. And since then, others have come to light. So the sensationalistic press presents these as the lost books of the Bible, and you see all those kind of headlines and stuff. And they've been, they've been the source of all kinds of speculation and found their way into popular culture since the 1970s. And of course, the whole Da Vinci Code thing is rooted in that very thing because all those kooky ideas come out of the Gnostic hidden gospels you know, that were discovered. And, and it makes for good headlines because the Gnostics struck... Um, uh, their, they, they put on their gospels names of people in the Bible. So 
It makes it sound like it's got something to it. So there's the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary and the Apocalypse of Adam. I think Adam writing an apocalyptic book. Uh, Peter and, and James, you know, have apocalypses and all those kind of things. You get the idea. Well, the word Gnostic means knowledge. And Gnosticism taught salvation by secret knowledge. And if you could learn the code, the mystery, the secret thing, you would be freed from the material universe in your body and you could be reunited with the great essence of the universe, the great pleroma, the fullness of all things and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, when you look at their Gospels, their Gospels are not narratives at all. Jesus doesn't go from here to there. He doesn't travel. He doesn't uh, go to this town or that town. He just talks because he's giving you secret knowledge. So they're just discourses, if you will, or, or a lot of babble. I can say babble because it's not Jesus really speaking, okay? It's just some guy writing it with his name stuck on there. So um, there's no dates, there's no places, there's no events. They claim to be the secret teachings of Jesus, secret knowledge. And their theology is, (laughs) it's really hard to understand. It's like almost unbelievably complex. And even within Gnosticism, there's all these different schools. There's nothing Christian about it, only the names, just like Mormonism today. There's nothing Christian about it, just the names. And in short, the, the God, this is how it works. The God who made this world, the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, was one of the last, most low-class little burps of this great cosmic fullness deity that exists out there. And he was such a low being that he created a material world. Ugh! See, this is a very Greek way of thinking. The material world is bad. So he created that, and uh, Jesus has come to save us from his creation, this wicked God that created this world, who is the God of the Old Testament. So now, does that sound real Christian to you? Like, just another stream in the flow of Christianity? No, it's, like, really different. Totally different religion. And nobody believes that anymore. I mean, nobody believes Gnosticism. Even though you, you go to the bookstore, there's Gnostic, Gnostic, Gnostic books all over the city. I went my daughter, when I dropped our daughter off at college a few weeks ago, I went into the bookstore, and there was a whole religion section because they're studying all the great books of the Western world and all this stuff, and Gnostic, 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 Gnostic. I, it was hard to find an Orthodox Christian book in there, except they had C.S. Lewis, a lot of those. But um, Gnosticism is just like, but, no, but nobody's a Gnostic anymore. That really, you know, there's people that put that name on their thing because it's so kooky. Anyway, God made a huge mistake by creating the world, and he's a fool, trapping souls in a material world. And Jesus came to free us from the mistake that Jehovah made and to give us clues that will help us navigate through the, the uh, spiritual realms and get back to the fullness, the pleroma, when we're all done with life. And he never died on the cross. Gnostic texts make it really clear that how could this great being that came to save us die on a cross? So Simon of Cyrene, some of the texts say, the guy that carried the cross up the hill... They got him on there, and uh, Jesus actually escaped. And other Gnostics taught that this man, Jesus just, the Christ came upon this man, Jesus, and then when he was being going to be crucified, he left. The Christ got away, and the man, Jesus, was left stuck on the cross. And that, that kind of thinking, there's a lot of different variations of it. But the idea is detestable to them that Christ would become a real human being and would die on the cross. And uh, there's one Gnostic book from the Nag Hammadi Library called The Second Treatise of the Great Seth. And that says this about the God of the Old Testament, and it's supposedly the words of Christ. I'm gonna, uh, the, the word archon appears here. The archons are the rulers of the universe that are birded out by this uh, big sort of nothing being behind everything. The archon was a laughingstock because he said, and the archon he's talking about in this context is the God that created the world, our, our Father in heaven. 
The archon was a laughingstock because he said, I am God and there is none greater than I. I alone am the Father, the Lord, and there is no other besides me. I am a jealous God who brings the sins of the fathers upon the children for three and four generations. Those are just quotes right out of the Old Testament. The Gnostic Gospels say that that God is a laughingstock. As if he had become stronger than I and my brothers. But we are innocent with respect to him and that we have not sinned since we mastered his teaching. Thus, he was in an empty glory. And he does not agree with our father. And thus, through our fellowship, we grasped his teaching since he was vain in an empty glory. And he does not agree with our father for he was a laughing stock and judgment and false prophecy. That's what the Gnostics believed about the God of the Old Testament. So does that sound like a little stream in the river of Christianity just kind of flowing along there? I say all that because in all the popular novels and all the silly TV documentaries they have about the Bible and stuff you often see on the History Channel or A&E or something like that, Gnosticism is always presented as an early form of Christianity. And uh, even as the earliest form, sometimes they say that. Uh, and Orthodox Christianity um, is like less pure than Gnosticism. And they like it. They like it because it has no moral authority at all. And they like to cast it as a victim of Orthodox oppression, even though the Orthodox Church had zero power to oppress the, the Gnostics. And Gnosticism was pretty much done by the time the Church had any real power. So it's all baloney, and the reason it's baloney is because Orthodox Christianity is rooted in actual history. And that's where we're going with all this. So I call Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, the, the missing verses of the Bible, because the verses are always missing from the articles. And these verses are always missing from the books. And these verses are always missing from the TV documentaries about the Bible that they always have. Always missing. And um, about the real Jesus or the Gnostic Jesus or the search for the real Jesus. You ever see those kind of titles? The search for the true Jesus. They never, ever, ever quote Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 in those. Even though that is a central text if you were like objectively looking to see if something was true. This is, where you would, this is what you would read. But they leave it out. Why do they leave it out? Why are these the missing verses in their documentaries? Because those who want to confuse people about the origins of our faith are afraid. They're afraid of Luke. They really are. They're afraid of Luke's words. They're afraid of Luke's commitment to the truth. So Luke 1, 1 through 4 is not missing from the Bible. It's missing from all those people who want to undermine our culture's faith in the Bible, who want to bury the Bible under a pile of new discoveries and new thinking about Jesus and all of that stuff. So Luke 1, 1 through 4 is so powerful and so appealing to the modern mind that they pretend it's not even there. It makes the Gnostic Gospels, these verses make the Gnostic Gospels look like the fabrications that they are. And one thing they don't do either, those Gnostic Gospels, is quote, well, these documentaries, they never quote more than one or two sentences from a Gnostic Gospel because I would challenge you to go to the library Find the Nag Hammadi library in there, a little collection of Gnostic, and try to read them. Just try and see if you understand what in the world they're talking about. Because it is so weird, mystical, esoteric nonsense. It's bizarre. And nobody would actually sit there, nobody would gather in a group like this and start, let's study the Gospel of Philip today. Because nobody would understand what it meant. The person up here wouldn't understand what it meant. Uh, unless you're into the archons and the subsystem categories of demiurges of deities and beings and angels and all that. Unless you were truly trying to get back to the Pleroma, are you all trying to do that? I mean, you're just not, it doesn't connect, you know? So let's look at the text here and um, the ones they don't want you to know about. 
Here's what it says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. See why they fear that? Luke is meticulously researched history based on eyewitness testimony. One interesting feature of this paragraph, it's really one long sentence here, is the very formal style that Luke uses. Most of the New Testament is written in, they call it Koine Greek. It's the marketplace Greek. It's the language of the day, the language of the street, if you will. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It was, you know, how English is sort of the common language of the world today. French used to be. And it's the kind of, if you go to other countries and listen to people speak English, it's just a little bit different, you know. And uh, Greek was a little bit different than the high formal Greek, the marketplace kind of Greek, the trade Greek was a little bit different than the very formal, high-class, philosophical Greek. Well, most of the New Testament is written in that common marketplace Greek, the Greek of real-world real interaction, you know, so people could understand it. But Luke, the, these first four verses are written in this very high, formal Greek style, very beautiful and um, elegant. And Luke shows that Luke was an educated person, which he was, a doctor. But um, he starts by appealing to the uh, mind of a man like Theophilus, a, a Gentile reader would read this, and see this great language and, and think substance. This is something substantive here, linguistically, so they would be attracted to it. And Luke sets forth the gospel, his, his purpose, his research, and his intention in this one gentle and beautifully expressed sentence. So we're going to look at this sentence for what it tells us about, well, for one thing about Luke, but then about the book itself, the gospel, and then we'll see what we can find here that we can apply to ourselves. So what do the words tell us about Luke? Well, first, that he was an educated man. Scholars know this instantly from his style. That's the first thing that hits you if you're a Greek-speaking or Greek-literate uh, person. He's not a fisherman. He's not a shepherd. He's an educated person. Something else, too, although Luke's gospel is generally a purer and higher Greek style than the others, only this first sentence is really classical Greek. In other words, in verse 5, it immediately starts to uh, read like somebody that's bringing over something from another language, like Hebrew or Aramaic, which is exactly what Luke is doing. And the point is this. Luke is very faithful to his sources. So Christ probably spoke Greek, but he mainly spoke whatever the common language of his own people would be, which would be like Aramaic or even Hebrew. There's more Hebrew going on than people used to think in the first century. But um, what my point is, Luke could have reinterpreted all the events of Christ and put it into this very high-class philosophical Greek language because he had the capacity to do that, but he doesn't do it. What he gives us is just the way it happened. And he's very faithful to the sources, his Hebraic sources, and the kind of cruder Greek that they may have been translated from. So he's not going to change things to make it sound better to his people or his particular class that he might be trying to appeal to. That's an important sign for his commitment to the truth. He followed the original thoughts and the original ideas carefully. So Luke is a man who, when confronted with the choice of changing the story for his readers to accept or telling them the truth precisely as he can, he goes with the truth as precisely as he can. 
And we learn, too, that Luke was a careful researcher. Verse 3, he says, having investigated everything carefully. These four verses contain a wealth of information on the activity of the early church. Look at verse 1 again. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. So what's he saying? Many people had undertaken to write the story about Christ. The early church was abuzz with accounts and reminiscences and and stories about Jesus and remembrances and all of those things. The things he said, the the miracles, the, the wonders, the sermons, the parables. And far from the assumption of Modern biblical critics, and if you take a course in most universities on the Bible, the New Testament, they have all these wild theories about how the New Testament came to be and higher critical theories and all this kind of stuff. And the assumption of all of those critics is that nobody had any real interest in the real Jesus Christ. You just had a few people come along that just kept inventing him. And what Luke, who lived at the time, tells us is many had undertaken to compile an account. Wouldn't you? If you knew Jesus and could write, wouldn't you... Leave something for the grandkids? The day he came to your town or the, the, the time you saw him or the miracle you... Wouldn't you? And if you were a, a truly literate person and a capable writer, wouldn't you try to capture even more of it and talk to other... Yeah, a lot of people did it. We don't have a lot of those copies of those documents anymore because these were the authoritative ones. These are the Holy Spirit-inspired ones. But a lot of people did it, Luke says. The assumption of modern critics is... Nobody has any interest in what Jesus really said. Well, how can such a compelling person, a compelling human being, leave in his wake people who had no interest in him? Even false religions, people are passionately committed to the way the hero of their faith was. I was reading this book, The Looming Tower, about how Al-Qaeda came to be, you know. There's not only the Koran that the Muslims follow. Every little thing the prophet did, they wrote down and tried to imitate, and and it's it's all baloney, but I mean, that's what they do. Osama bin Laden eats with a certain hand because Muhammad the the prophet used to eat with that certain hand. I mean, whatever he did is what's right, you know? It's the way to do things. That's how interested people are that think that somebody is a lofty personage. Well, how about Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Do you think people were were sort of interested in what he did? Obviously, they would have been. But the critics always assume that nobody had any real interest in any real truth and people just kind of made up stories and threw them together and out, out popped the Gospels, the greatest truth of all time. So I don't know. But what we learn from Luke is that great care was taken to preserve the true sayings and deeds of Jesus. Notice his focus on eyewitness accounts. Eyewitnesses. Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. And then he mentions the servants of the word. We'll talk about them in a minute. Let's talk about eyewitnesses. Luke personally interviewed eyewitnesses. He was in Jerusalem with Paul. We know that from the book of Acts. He met James. He met the other elders of the church there. James was Christ's brother who would have supplied a lot of information about Jesus' early life, obviously, since he was in the family. And he likely met Jesus' mother if she was still living or other family members. Acts chapter 21 verse 8, Luke spent time with Philip the evangelist who had a powerful ministry in the very early church in Samaria. No doubt Luke heard firsthand Philip's story and his gospel emphasizes Jesus' relationship with Samaritans more than any other gospel. Now, how would Luke know about the Samaritans uniquely? Because he spent time with Philip who ministered to the Samaritans when the Samaritans would have told their stories to Philip and Philip would have related the eyewitness accounts or introduced Luke to those people that saw Jesus. That's why his gospel mentions them more. 
In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 8, verse um, 1, real quick. It says, It came about soon afterwards that he began going about from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Who is Joanna, wife of Chusa? Joanna's husband is the steward, the right-hand man of King Herod. Only Luke's gospel mentions her. She was one of the women who went to the tomb, and only Luke mentions that when they had the group of women in the morning in Jesus' resurrection day. Is it any surprise that only Luke's gospel mentions when Jesus was sent by Pilate to Herod? Remember, he was sent to Herod, and Herod tried to get him to do a trick, and Jesus wouldn't say anything to him because he was such a fool. And Jesus kept totally silent. He says, oh, let's see you do a miracle. Come on, come on. And they mocked him and all that stuff, and then they sent him back to Pontius Pilate. Only Luke mentions that. Why? Luke knew Joanna, who was the wife of a guy that was probably there. Chusa, Herod's steward, probably witnessed the whole thing. Eyewitness accounts. I'll bet he interviewed her or her husband. So eyewitnesses were available to Luke, and we have solid indications that he used his time with them very well. The concept of eyewitnesses is very important in Scripture. And to those men who were with Jesus and went out preaching continually, allude to that. Peter said it best, I guess, in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, when he was threatened by the authorities in Jerusalem in order to stop preaching. Remember, Peter and John said, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, read it earlier today. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Luke mentions not only eyewitnesses, but also this category in Luke chapter 1 of servants of the word. Well, what does that mean? And who are they? Well, some see them as the eyewitnesses, especially the apostles who gave their lives for the testimony of the gospel truths they were witnesses to. But others believe, and I think this is likely, that these were a special category of men, maybe including the apostles, whose life mission was the accurate transmission of the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. In other words, that were the preservers of the tradition that was accurate and based on eyewitness testimony. They remembered, they learned, they memorized, probably often committing to writing the things that Jesus said and did. That would have been very typical for a Jewish-based group of religionists to do to preserve the authoritative teaching in such a dramatic way, which is exactly what the Jews did with the Old Testament, fanatically preserving the Old Testament. So it would make sense that Jews that believed that God came in human flesh and was the Son of God and died for their sins and was risen to glory and was coming again would accurately be committed to preserving his sayings and words and deeds as well. So there apparently was a group of people, the servants of the word, whose job was to hand down accurately the true story. So Luke talks about them as well. It'd be only reasonable for them to do that. So Luke received, as a second-generation Christian, what they handed down. And still, he didn't just take that, he checked it out. Okay, I got all this great information from the servants of the word, the preservers of the tradition, 
and I'm going to check out everything they said. I'm going to investigate it. Luke says he investigated everything carefully from the beginning, from the start. And again, Luke uniquely adds details in his gospel about the early life of Jesus, his parents' experience, John the Baptist, the birth narrative. Uh, He really goes back to the beginning, the first wondrous act of God among his people in 400 years. And it began with John the Baptist's father in the temple having an angel appear to him. And Luke begins with that story from the beginning. And he tells the story as far as he can. You can go right through the Gospel of Luke to the book of Acts because he wrote that too. Volume 2, the book of Acts, the story of the early church, and carry it right to Acts chapter 28 when Paul is preaching uh, under house arrest in Rome. It's from the beginning to the end. So verse 3, when he says, from the beginning he laid it out in an ordered plan. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. And by consecutive order, he means in in a logical plan. He's developing it purposefully. So from Luke 1 to Acts 28, from the angel's appearance in the temple to Paul in Rome, still preaching, Luke lays out God's plan to reach out to all men and to bring salvation to all peoples and all nations. Only Luke does that in such a complete way. No wonder he felt the Spirit prompting him to add to the volumes that already existed about Jesus and the stories that are already being told. He would take it farther, farther back and farther forward. And who could do it better? He had the time, he had the access, he had the education, and he had the commitment to do the research properly. Which leads to my final point about Luke the man. He was not only educated, he was not only a careful researcher, but he was an evangelist. I mean, Luke sought the salvation of souls, and he knew that that required accurate and reliable information. He doesn't say, oh, you know, we've got to get the gospel out there, so I'm going to make up some wonderful stories to really make Jesus look good. No, his commitment is, gosh, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and we've got to know the truth about him. Wouldn't wouldn't you have that attitude? Well, he did. He's not going to start creating fabricated stories. He's more committed to accurately communicating what really happened. So Theophilus, one of this multitude of interested Gentiles who had learned something about Christianity, they needed a gospel for them. Lots of stories were going around. They needed the truth. What does a pagan Gentile need? He needs the truth about Jesus, the story of how God is reaching out to them. And in Luke's gospel, they get the truth. Sir William Ramsey, who is uh, one of the... Thank you, sister. Brother. Sorry, brother. I wasn't thanking you for taking him out. I was thanking him for saying amen. That was it. <laughs> we can edit that from the day. Now she's all embarrassed. If you can't embarrass the moms, what can you do? Anyway, Sir William Ramsey, who spent years literally following in Luke's footsteps um, as Luke traveled from place to place in the book of Acts, uh, doing a lot of research. He was stunned by Luke's accuracy, and he wrote several books detailing his work. And he, the conclusion is what... Let me just read you what he said, Sir William Ramsey. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. He seizes the important or critical events and shows their true nature and greater length while he touches lightly or omits entirely much that was valueless for his purpose. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Truth, accuracy, important words then, still important words today. 
Educated Gentiles in the first century were looking for some kind of certainty, not fables. And people in the know, you know, in the first century, there was all this pagan religion. Educated people really didn't believe in that stuff anymore. They really didn't. They were very cynical. And they did the gods thing because it was official and they were supposed to, but they really looked down their noses on people that really believed in Zeus and Apollo and stuff like that. Most educated people were not into that. Philosophers tried to find God through speculation. And many turned to Eastern religions with their secret knowledge and their mystery rites because they thought maybe an experience, just like in our culture, if you, when you reject truth-based religion, you seek an experience-based religion and just you know, meditating on your navel or whatever. Because the truth seemed unattainable to them. This philosopher says this, this philosopher says that. And I think Dr. Luke knew he had something to offer, that Jesus brought God to the lost. And it wasn't merely a nice story. It was history. It was history. It was the real thing. God became a man and in love and self-sacrifice purchased salvation for all men with his blood. And there's no secret rites or mystical secret knowledge or higher wisdom. Jesus lived and breathed and taught and worked wonders and died and rose again. And that's fact. And because it's true, it's good news. And the evangelist in Luke longed to make that real to people. And let's talk about the book for a minute there. What do we know about this book that we've started on? Well, it had many forerunners. We already said that. Many written accounts of one quality or another were already written. Luke became one of the four Gospels in the church canon because it testifies to the authoritative stance it held among the early Christians. Luke was never doubted. It was one of the great... The four Gospels were accepted right away, right away in the first century. All recognized. Matthew and John, of course, were apostles. Mark was probably the... Well, he was an eyewitness of some events and he was very closely connected with both Paul and Peter. And Luke, the Gentile, the second generation Christian, is given an equal standing with those men, one among many. And it was of such value that it just stood right beside the apostolic work and recognized as fully apostolic in its authority. So it's thoroughly researched, as we've discussed. It represents an accurate transmission of data, and it's purposeful. It sets everything out in an orderly way, in consecutive orders, the way the NASB. That doesn't necessarily mean chronological order, but in a logical fashion, orderly account. So it had arrangement. It had planning. We learn a lot about this gospel just from these four verses, by gospel, I mean Luke's work here, this gospel, and also the gospel, its roots in real historical events. God entered history, and this is the record of it. Well, what can we learn from Luke's example, just for ourselves? Well, for one thing, it's true. So rest in it. Secondly, history is absolutely in God's hands. In verse 1, Luke speaks of the things accomplished among us. The NIV says the things that have been fulfilled among us. That's probably a better translation than the NIV in that case. Luke is unfolding in his gospel an act of divine accomplishment. What God has actually done, the fulfilling of an event that was foretold from ancient times. In fact, it was foretold to Adam and Eve that one would come someday to crush Satan's head. For thousands of years, the direction of history was anticipating this event that Christ would come. And in Luke's day, he actually came. It happened. And history has been different ever since. We date our calendars by it. And yeah, they can change A.D. and B.C. and call it C.E. and B.C.E., the common era. But hey, the common era began with the coming of Jesus Christ. 
So they can pretend all they want. And the story continues because God is still accomplishing great things among us globally in the big picture and individually in many, many, many millions of individual lives. Christ is still saving. He's still redeeming. He's still transforming people. He's still opening hearts to the truth. And you and I can be a part of this great accomplishment. The Bible says that the same spirit that inspired the Bible writers, the same spirit that turned men to God in the early days of Christianity, he dwells in you if you believe in Christ. The same spirit. And he can and will use you. He will accomplish something among us if we seek to do his will and follow his direction. And there's another application too. We need to be servants of the word as well in the sense that we need to be committed to truth. And I say that in the sense that we need to be committed to truth, the idea of truth, and we need to be committed to the truth as it appears in God's word. It's not our wisdom but the word of God that works wonders. And we have to remain committed to God's word to be our guide, our rule, our standard. This pulpit will serve the word of God. All those who teach here will serve the word of God. All who bear witness to Christ here must do so as servants of the word. We have to be committed to that, every one of us. And that means it's not about our opinions, nor worldly philosophies, or psychological theories, or whatever else, but the word of God, pure and simple, plain and true. And finally, from Luke, we should just learn to be truthful people. That has a lot of applications. Christians are notoriously gullible. The rumor mill, um, stories that get passed along, the foolishness. Um, and, you know, it happens amongst us. People have a, something they need to tell. And sometimes it's done maliciously, and sometimes it's uh, just done to have something to do. But the rumor mill and the gossip mill and all of that can't be allowed. And, and the Internet. I mean, Christians... Christians believe everything they read on the internet sometimes. And Luke would say, get the exact truth before you start spreading stories or things. You know, there's actually organizations, there's people that write phony stories to throw on the internet just to watch how kooky Christians will take them and run around with them and get them all over the place and get all upset. I mean, they, they actually plan to do that. And, uh, and we buy it. It happens all the time. Pass it along stuff you have no idea if it's true or not true. Even slanderous things. You don't want to pass on lies. And some are, you know, they're designed very cleverly to kind of support our side in some of these stories. There's a story that Charles Darwin repented on his deathbed and recanted his whole theory of evolution and all that. You know what? That didn't actually happen. It's a great idea. I wish it did happen, but it didn't happen. And when we pass along stories like that and people know the truth, they just look at us as stupid. So don't want to be gullible. Steve Irwin accepted Christ right before, two weeks before he got stung by a stingray and died and he was at a big church service and he went forward and it didn't happen. You know, I hope he's in heaven. I hope he did, but, I, but it, we, there's no evidence that that ever happened. Just stories that just started swimming around, things like that. Um, movie star conversions are really popular, especially after they're dead. Um, <laughs> some of the gossip is really mean-spirited. Um, J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter books, and you can hate the Harry Potter books for what they are, but She's not a Satanist and wanting to eat children or anything like that. And there's been things on the Internet saying that about her. That's not true. And how does she think? She's a, by the way, she's a theist. She believes in God, and she goes to an Anglican church in England and all that stuff. But she, so I doubt if she's a real Christian, but uh, she says she is. So, you know, she's not a Satanist, and she's not a witch. She doesn't know anything about witchcraft, really. Not even in the books, there's not any real witchcraft. But does it, make, does it help her 
when the Bible Christians are, are absorbing and passing along things that say she's satanic and, or that she worships the devil? Does that help her? Are we winning her to the gospel side and to the Bible side if, uh, if, if, if we lie about her? You know what I'm saying? And just take that and apply it all the way down the line for people. Have integrity. Luke's the kind of guy that would say, oh, did you know that uh, J.K. Rowling's a Satanist and she eats children? No, I didn't know that. Um, what, what evidence? I read a thing on the Internet. Here, let me print it out for you. Luke would say, well, what's the basis of that? And let's find out where that came from. And maybe even call her up and ask her, you know, because uh, all that stuff's not true. So we need, like Luke, to be people that are devoted to truth. Truth is so important. And we have to be known as truthful people or thoughtful people. Even that would be a good thing. That will make it much better for us when we pass on the most important truth, right? Because if you pass around a lot of silly stuff, then when you bring somebody the gospel, you know how they're going to see it? More silly stuff. You're kind of kooky, aren't you? That's what people are going to say. If you're committed to the truth and accuracy and fairness and giving people the benefit of the doubt and all those kind of things, then you're going to come across as a lot more sane. (laughs) And the great truth will be the truth. You know why Luke is so powerful and why they're afraid of him? Because he's so solid. He's so solid. The book of Acts, it must mention a hundred different places and people and weird locations and this constant traveling. And he quotes from dozens of other people's speeches and things. It's just an incredible compilation of events. And people have traced it all the way through. And you know what? He's accurate and accurate and accurate and accurate and accurate. So when he says something amazing happened, I think it happened. I believe him. Because he's not telling stories and making stuff up. So we need to be that way too. Luke acquired truth about Jesus in order to better share it. And we should do that too. Share it with those who don't know and share it with those that are inclined to believe but might not understand it. Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And he doesn't mean mystical, esoteric knowledge. He means the truth. God's word. So Luke will do all he can so that Theophilus or anybody else reading his gospel that he can reach will not be destroyed for lack of knowledge. Faith It's more than facts, but it begins with facts. And we have to be people that are committed to the truth. Let's embrace truth as strongly as Dr. Luke does. The truth in principle and the truth as we have it in the gospel. And God will make it effective, just like he did in the first century and just like he's doing all over the world today, just as he did in Luke's day, if we just serve the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way you shaped the life of this man to do the research, to form the words, to use his great mind to bring truth to bear. Oh, he had a purpose because he knew the Savior behind it all. He wanted to present him so others could know him too. Not telling stories, but presenting what people saw and knew for real. We thank you for that. We thank you that Our faith is based not on some great leap, but it's based on what you did in history. And you arranged it, Father, so that men would write and preserve accurately the testimony of eyewitnesses so that we might know these things for sure. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.